Um, for those who, uh, of you who are near, new here this morning, my name is Stephen Smith. Um, I'm one of the elders here. I've been an elder here for about uh, six or seven years now, I believe. And uh, I'm glad to be able to be up here this morning sharing the word with, with this congregation. And uh, as we go to the scriptures this morning, I ask you to join me in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we, we ask that you would help us to turn our hearts and minds to the word that you have given us, to surrender our wills to the scriptures, to surrender our intellect to the scriptures. We pray that if we devote ourselves to what you have given us in your word, that Christ would be exalted, that we would be strengthened as people and as the church, Uh, to live for your glory in this fallen world. Uh, I pray, God, for me that you would remove me uh, from out of this equation and that your word would speak clearly. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, For those of you who are history buffs, such as myself, you learn that history is really just a a chronology of wars and battles and skirmishes between different human beings for different reasons and different places and different regions of the world, all vying for power or land or, or money or possessions or all three. And throughout history, you see Um, commanders and military leaders having to make decisions about which hills they will die on and which hills they won't. Which hills they will give up and which hills they will stand and defend to the death. And it's fitting that this morning um, we just had an elder affirmation of Gary Strange. And what I would like to say to you this morning as one of the elders of this church is that this passage that we're getting ready to look at this morning is a hill that the elders of this congregation will die on. It is a hill that we will stand and fight to the death to preserve the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, that there's probably no other hill that would come even close to this hill. And as we go into Philippians chapter 3, I invite you to turn your Bibles there. Paul makes it clear that he's willing to die on this hill too. The hill of the purity of the gospel. And in verse 1, he says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And so Paul makes it clear that in this passage that we're getting ready to look at, he is writing to them again. Something that he said before and something that doesn't trouble him whatsoever to say it again and something that he will say again in the future. And it is no trouble to him at all. And Paul makes a habit of doing this. Peter does this as well in 2 Peter chapter 1 where he said, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able to recall these things at any time. If you had to describe, as I think about it, the job of the leadership of churches, at at the height of that job description, would be something along these lines. To ensure that every person that sits in these pews every Sunday morning clearly understands 
the perfect, beautiful, unbelievable, gracious gift of the salvation that Christ offers through him by faith alone. Amen? That that is the heartbeat of the local church. And every church that has ever died, the beginning of the death of that church was the slightest perversion, the slightest twisting of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And from there, it went on. In this text, if you look, at, look with me at verse 2, Paul says this to the Philippians. Look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is warning the church in Philippi that there are those who are evildoers, who mutilate the flesh, who he refers to as dogs, who are, who are going to seek to, to work their way into the congregation. Paul actually speaks of this to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 where he says, I testify to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Be careful to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, They will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. If we look at verse 2, I want you to consider who these folks are. Throughout the New Testament, Paul and other authors are dealing with a religious group of people that have been coined the Judaizers. And it's important to understand who the Judaizers are. The Judaizers um, were practicing Jews who had made a profession of faith in Christ. So they were Jews that were practicing the the Old Testament customs, the ceremonial laws, even the sacrificial system to the extent that it was being practiced in the New Testament. But they also, in their religious wanderings, I should say, came to hear of Jesus Christ and made a profession of faith concerning the person of Jesus Christ. So you could go up to a Judaizer and ask them, is Jesus the Messiah? And they would say to you, yes, he is. You could ask them, did Jesus die on the cross for your sin? And they would say to you, yes, he did. You could ask them, do you have to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And you know what they would say? Yes. Yes, you do. But here's the kicker. These Judaizers believed that you needed to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ died for the sins of people. But they also believed in order to be saved, you had to convert to Judaism and keep the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Keep the Sabbath. Keep the feast and holidays. And most importantly, what comes up in this text is be circumcised. And they believed with all their heart that if you were not circumcised as a Jew, though you were trusting in Christ and though you believed that you were a sinner, you could not be saved. And look at how Paul speaks about these men and these women. He says, look out for the dogs. 
The term dogs is used throughout the New Testament. Jesus says this, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before the pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 2, It would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than to, after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returned to wallow in the mire. Revelation 22 speaks of the dog this way. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves to practice falsehood. The word dog throughout the Greek world was meant to refer to people who were men of impure mind or impudence. And Paul describes here these Judaizers as dogs. He also refers to them as evil doers. And the word universally in the Greek world meant people of bad nature. It had a moral sense. The word was used to describe those who think, feel, and act in a way that is base, depraved, wrong, and wicked. Finally, he says of these Judaizers that they are those who mutilate the flesh. The word mutilate is a play on words. There, there is a, a peritone, para, which means around, like perimeter. Peritone, which means circumcision, which is the word used for circumcision. Here, he describes these Judaizers as those who catatone, which means to cut up or mutilate. And he's using this play on words to describe what the Jews, the Judaizers are doing. He is dismissing the idea that salvation can happen because of circumcision. And what I want to do for a few minutes this morning, before, as we kind of dig into this, is come to a biblical understanding of what circumcision was meant to do. He says of the Judaizers... And in the, in the, the church in Galatia, for example, says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion of being saved through circumcision is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And then Paul says this, I wish those who unsettle you with circumcision would go all the way and emasculate themselves. That's Galatians chapter 5, verse 12. So, here's something I want you to think about for just a second. These Judaizers would agree with us on points of doctrine about who Jesus was. They would agree with us on points of doctrine about what Jesus did. They would agree with us on points of doctrine about the resurrection of Christ. They would even agree on points of doctrine concerning the deity of Christ, that Jesus was God's son. All of these things. But they wavered. And they took the gospel of Jesus Christ and they twisted it. They said, yes, all of this is true, but, but, you need to be circumcised. And you need to obey the ceremonial law. And you need to follow, follow the law of Moses. And in that twisting, just in that, in a lot of ways, we would look at that and say, that's just a slight 
you know, I mean, they're awfully close, right? In that twisting, the, the gospel is lost. In fact, the gospel is so lost that when Paul's addressing this issue to the church of Galatia, he says, listen, if you allow yourselves to be circumcised in order to be saved, Christ is of no value to you. Because the moment we as human beings begin to allow our hearts to turn to anything, anything else apart from the righteousness and the merits of Christ, we have lost the gospel. And Paul believes this so strongly that these Judaizers, he says, they're dogs and they're evildoers who mutilate the flesh. Here's the reality, guys. The truth matters. The truth matters. And specifically, the truth in regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ matters. Amen? The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be altered. It cannot be adjusted. We don't get to tamper with it. The gospel of Jesus Christ was once for all delivered to the saints and our job as Christians is to contend for it. important. Let's move on. Verse 3. Paul says to the church of Philippi, we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. And what I want to do for a few minutes this morning is just do a quick kind of run through of Scripture because it is so important. I, it, it stuns me how many believers are still confused about the relationship of the old covenant to the new, about the relationship of circumcision to the new covenant. And so what I want to do for a few minutes is go back to the Old Covenant and go back to the Old Testament and see what Moses and the prophets were saying. And that way we can understand what happened at the birth of the church, all right? So the first thing I want to do is I want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29. If you just mark your Bible in Philippians 3, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29. And we're going to start there. To give you an idea, just to give you an understanding of what Deuteronomy is, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. That's what the, the title of the book means. Deutero, second, nama, law. It is the second giving of the law. And what has happened in Deuteronomy is Moses has led the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion against God. Now they are back to the Jordan River. God's already told Moses, you can't go into the promised land. But what I want you to do is I want you to remind the Jews of everything that I told you at the mountain. And so what Deuteronomy is, is really just a repeat of Leviticus at a different time, 40 years later. They're standing at the Jordan River. Moses gives the Israelites the law again, completely, a second time. Moses knows in this context, at the end of this, this book, that he's getting ready to die. Now listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And we'll just start in verse 1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horah. 
And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before you, all that he did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to his land. And the great trials that your eyes saw and the signs and those great wonders. So he's calling to their attention everything that they've seen since they've been rescued from Egypt. The Red Sea, the wandering in the wilderness, the manna from heaven, quail. I mean, just water from rocks, right? All of these things that you've seen. But look at, what, look at the weakness. Verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to hear. Look at me with uh, look with me at chapter thirty. Chapter thirty, verse one. It's important that in the giving of the commandments in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight and Deuteronomy chapter twenty-nine. God told Moses, if they obey my commandments and do all that I've told them to do, I will bless them, I will honor them, I will give them prosperity, I will give them wealth, and so on and so forth. And then he said, but if they disobey and they break my covenant, I will curse them. And they will be sent into exile. And they will be killed and they will be murdered and they will be, plunt- they will be plundered. Chapter 30, verse 1. Moses says this, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And look at verse 6. And the Lord your God in that day will circumcise your hearts. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. Moses has already said, listen, the weakness of all that's going on here is that God has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see yet. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day when God will return you to your fortunes and return you to your land. And He will then circumcise your heart. Chapter 31, he addresses the same issue. And Moses says this, speaking of the hardness of the Israelites' hearts at this time, for when I have brought them into the land, flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to, the for, for, to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. When many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song will confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of the offspring. Moses says this about them, I know what you are inclined to do even today. What a scene, guys. Moses had just given them the law. They haven't even entered the promised land yet. And he goes, I know what your heart is inclined to do. And this, in and of itself, is the weakness of the law. There's commandments given without power to keep them. This outward restraint placed on human beings whose hearts don't desire to keep it. And this is the promise of the prophets. So for example, look at me with, uh, look with me at Jeremiah 31.
Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, the prophet says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write my law on their hearts, and I will be their God, they will be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor uh, teach his neighbor and each, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. Ezekiel chapter 36 addresses the same issue. The rebellious people. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord your God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, I will vindicate the holiness of my name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Lord declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. How is he going to do this? I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. And I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh." This is, this is what the prophets are looking for. They know that the weaknesses of the law is that they cannot keep it. And the reason they cannot keep it is because their hearts have not been changed to keep it. And Moses knew the day he gave the Israelites the law that what they needed more than anything was not the circumcision of the flesh. They needed their hearts to be circumcised by the Spirit of God. Are you guys understanding what I'm saying? So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. And we can't read this whole thing, but Pastor Toby just preached on this a couple weeks ago. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost, verse 1, arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues. And the Spirit gave them utterance. And in Acts chapter 2, it records the, the message that Peter preaches to the Jews Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The, Jeremiah 31 is happening right now. Ezekiel chapter 36, this is the moment that it happened. 
Deuteronomy chapter 30, this is when it's happening. Look at verse 38. Look at verse 38. Sorry, verse 37. The Jews are sitting there. They're hearing Peter preach the gospel. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The heart was circumcised. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Look at Acts chapter 8. That was in the presence of the Jews, but look at Acts chapter 8. It goes on to Samaria. Verse 4 of chapter 8, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw that the signs he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so that there was much joy in the city. Now look at verse 14 of chapter 8 in Acts. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit being given to the Jews and their hearts being cut. In Acts chapter 8, we see the Spirit being given to the Samaritans and their hearts were cut. And what happens, this is not a prescriptive thing, but when, when the apostles went to Samaria to see this, God was doing this for them. I want you to understand that the Samaritans are receiving the Spirit just like the Jews were. Just like the Jews were. Look at Acts chapter 9. Where's it at? I'm missing it here, guys. I've lost it. Sorry, Acts chapter 10. So now, now Peter is preaching to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Verse 34, he says, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. As for the word he sent back to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, you yourselves know that what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with, from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now look at what happens to the Gentiles in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. God poured out His Holy Spirit on uncircumcised Gentiles. Then Peter declared, 
And this is key, verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? Just as we have. In Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, there were men, verse Verse 1 of chapter 15, men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Peter's response to this is so important. In verse 8, he says this, guys, listen, we saw what happened in Samaria, we saw what happened to the Gentiles with Philip, We know that God has given His Spirit to Gentiles, to Samaritans, and Jews, and the key word is just the same. Verse 8, God who knows the heart bore witness to them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. The circumcision of the heart that needed to come came. And it came to the Jews through the preaching of the Gospel and receiving it by faith. It came to the Samaritans by the preaching of the Gospel and receiving it by faith. And it came to the Gentiles by the preaching of the gospel and receiving it by faith. Therefore, in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, we are the circumcision. Why does he say that? Because every Christian that exists on the face of planet earth and that has ever existed on the face of planet Earth is a Christian because the power of the Holy Spirit through the preached Word of God circumcised their heart. If you are a Christian this morning, you are a Christian because God's Spirit has cut you to the heart. This is what God does when He saves people. Paul says, listen, it's not those who have cut the flesh who are circumcised. It is those who have been circumcised by the Spirit Himself who are circumcised. It is we, verse 3, who worship by the Spirit of God. See, the delineating factor between believers and unbelievers is not moralism. The delineating factor, like the song we just sang, is not what he does versus what I do, or what he wears versus what I wear, or or who he associates with versus who I associate with. The delineating factor, according to Romans 8, is you are in Christ if, in fact, you have the Spirit of Christ. And this is so important for everyone in this room to hear. You are not a Christian because you're in church this morning. Young people, you're not a Christian because you've been coming to church with your parents since the day you were born. What makes a Christian a Christian is God. Let me ask you this. Has God ever cut your heart? Has the Word of God ever been that Hebrews 4.12 experience, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce the bone from the marrow, the soul from the spirit? Have you ever had that piercing done to you? Has God's Spirit ever done that to you? Laid you wide open? That's what saves a man. Not being a good person. Not coming here every week. Not throwing a little money in the offering plate, singing some tearful song. That doesn't do it. 
Paul says, don't listen to those men who say you need to be circumcised outwardly. I tell you that if the Spirit of God has circumcised your heart, you are the circumcision. It is those people who worship by the Spirit of God, and here it is, who glory in Christ Jesus alone. Who glory in Christ Jesus alone. He, Paul goes on to um, do a little gospel accounting, and I want to take a few minutes to think about that. There is a false view of how gospel accounting works. And it goes something like this. On one side is my debus. On one side is my list of moral failings and my sin. I'm a liar. I'm a cheat. I'm an adulterer, I'm envious, I hate people, I've hated people, I've been hated by others, I'm greedy, materialistic, the list goes on and on, right? I'm a thief, so on and so forth. And what the self-righteous man does is he does what Jesus condemns in Matthew chapter 5, which is where you take the law and you reduce it. Matthew 5 condemns that. Jesus says, whoever uh, takes away from this law, even a jot or a tittle, is to be condemned. Will be called the least in the kingdom of God. But this is what, what self-righteous people have to do. We have to take the law of God and we have to minimize it. We have to, we have to bring it down to our level so that we can actually kind of, kind of keep it. Where it's actually something we can attain. And what the self-righteous person does, it's like the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler goes to Jesus and says, you know, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And, and Jesus says, you, you must keep the commandments. And, and the rich young ruler in sincerity of heart says to Jesus, these I've kept since I was young. So then what we do is we say, okay, we've done, we've, I've done some bad stuff, but it's not as bad as these people. And over here we have a credit column. And so I know I've done some stuff. I've got to pay my, my debts, so I'm going to I'm going to give some money to the church. I'm going to, I'm going to help some people. I'm going, to, I'm going to give some money to the poor. I'm going to be extra good this week. And that's a miserable place to live, ladies and gentlemen. And what Paul said, Paul had all kinds of things in his human flesh that he could put on his credit column. Look at what he says. Although myself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul's saying from a human standpoint, comparing apples to apples, there wasn't anybody come close to me in my devotion to God. If there was anybody on the face of planet earth at this time that was going to boast in their flesh about their righteousness before God, it's going to be me. But look at what he says. Whatever gain I had, whatever I had in my credit column, I counted as loss. The moment God circumcised the heart of Paul, he began to understand that his self-righteous works, 
that his being a Hebrew of Hebrew, that his being circumcised on the eighth day, that his being the tribe of Benjamin, that his being a Pharisee in terms of the law, to his being the most zealous person to the point of persecuting and murdering people in the church, all went from being in his credit column before God to being put into his debit column before God. And ladies and gentlemen, what is so important for us to understand no matter who we are or where we're at in life, all the stuff that we do, everything, we put ourselves in the debit column. Because every single act that we do in this life that is performed by our, by our sin-stained hands is tainted. There's not a thing that we can do, not a place we can go, a thing we can say that's going to earn us merit and favor before God. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. That all we bring to the table is debit. That's all we bring to the table. And church, it's so important for us to understand this. We never bring something to the table that brings us a little, uh, a little more righteousness and favor and merit with God, ever. The circumcised heart, Paul says, is the one who worships by the Spirit and glories in Christ Jesus When we're trying to understand how we're made right with God, the circumcised heart does nothing but run to Christ. There's nothing going on here that's going to help that happen. And that's what Paul says here. I counted it all as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Isn't that good news? We bring nothing to this. And one day, guys, we're going to stand before God. A perfectly holy God. And He is going to peer through our souls. And there's going to be nothing that's hidden from His sight. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, there will be no sin there. Isn't that amazing? I think about all the sin that still resides in my heart. And that is an amazing thing to sit and ponder. That because of what Christ has done, when we stand before the judge of the universe, the king of kings, he will look through every deep, recess of our soul and will find no sin. So where are you at right now? As I close this up, where are you at right now? Are you someone who's struggling with sin and, and, and your response to your struggle with sin is to try to figure out things to do to atone for your sin? That's a miserable, miserable way to live. Are you someone that's coming to grip with how sinful you really are? Well, I have good news for you. You're more sinful than that. But Jesus says this to sinners. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. What's he talking about? He's talking about people who are recognizing their wretchedness and trying to fix it themselves, and it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. And it's a miserable way to live because we are so wretchedly sinful. Jesus says, come to me and I will take the load. So my word to you is that's you. Because when I, before I was a Christian, I carried around my sin. And it weighed me down. My bones wasted away. But today, through the power of the Spirit, you can experience freedom in Christ. And Paul says that I want the righteousness of God that depends on faith so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. Church, this is a hill worth dying on. Any righteousness that we have any righteousness that exists in Gray Road Baptist Church is from Jesus Christ Himself. Amen? Isn't that good news? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You today. We recognize our wretchedness that there's no hope in and of us. And we pray, God, for those who are in our midst this morning who are trying desperately to earn a right standing with you as a holy God. That you would crush their hard hearts, open their blind eyes, that they could see the glorious good news of salvation in Christ alone. Help us as a church, Lord, to be faithful to this good news, to be faithful to this gospel, to be faithful in our proclamation of it in our world and in our culture, that people would glory in Christ and Christ alone, and that we would not glory in ourselves in any way, shape, or form. And that is our prayer here at Gray Road, that you would be glorified as the one who saves sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.